morning, 1 Samuel chapter number 8. 1 Samuel chapter number 8. And first few weeks of the four-year-old class is going well, had to buy a whole new table, all right? So you filled up all the coloring tables, so that's a good thing, right? 1 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, we're going to cover the majority of the chapter, um, but looking here, continuing in our study of the life of Samuel. And Samuel's God's prophet here, living in an era that is not too dissimilar from the world in which you and I live. And it's a world that is uh, not necessarily applauding the truth of Scripture, not celebrating uh, the voice of God. And we see how Samuel has uh, been used of God already as a voice to call them back to return to the Lord. We looked at last week how they repent of their uh, compromise, come back to the Lord wholeheartedly with this desire to serve him alone. And we saw the victory God brought for them. 1 Samuel chapter 8, another 20 to 25 years have passed between the close of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Samuel, verse number 1, the Bible tells us in chapter 8, is old. Okay, I like that the Bible gives us that information. All right, his life is progressing. We started this now from pre-birth Samuel, right? Hannah praying that God would give her a son. Now to Samuel being uh, of old age. And you say, what, what, how old is old? I'm, I'm not that brave, all right? So you can take that definition for however much you want, all right? We saw at least 25 years played out from his late teens to last chapter. Another 20 to 25 years have played out since then. So somewhere in his 70s to 80s at this point, um, that's not old today, of course. In that time, it was old. Today, that is middle age or teenager is what that is. No, but First uh, Samuel chapter 8. And let's start reading together in verse number 1. Okay, the Bibles are open. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Again, if you don't have one with you, feel free to follow along using that handout. Verse 1, the Bible says, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of the second Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre or money, took bribes, and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. Super nice way to start that sentence, right? Behold, you're old, and your sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us. And then look at this phrase. It's going to be important. Like all the nations. Like all the nations. We'll see that repeated a couple different times in this text. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me, served other gods, so do they also unto you. So, verse 9, hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the people Men of the king that shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. We'll stop there. We'll continue as we make our way through it. Again, week six of Backbone. We've got at least, I think, two more weeks of this particular study. Um, I'm thankful for what we've learned already together, what God's done in our hearts, and uh, what we've been hearing about what God's doing in our hearts through his word. And our prayer is that this morning, once again, God would use his word to speak to our hearts, to challenge us, to convict us to transform us i know the tone of this series has been a little bit different than our luke tone right we've seen uh, a little bit more of a confrontational tone to this 
uh, passage of scripture than we have maybe in Luke, but I think it's so applicable to where we live and the lifestyles in which we partake in, and we are once again this morning dependent upon God to help us and dependent upon God to work. Uh, I'm entitled this morning's message, Red Flags, okay, Red Flags, and uh, red flags are meant to warn you of something, right? Uh, you see a red flag when you're at the beach, usually that's a bad sign, right? You don't want to go out swimming when there's a red flag out. Uh, maybe in your mind you can think of warning signs, right? You can think of the different warning signs we see of, you know, flooding perhaps, or the one that always scared me was the uh, high voltage sign, right? That, that one I've never had any desire to test out. Like, once you see high voltage, I'm not, I have no interest in proving your point, correct or incorrect, right? Uh, they're meant to warn you, right? If you continue down this path, if you continue the direction that you're heading, there's danger in front of you. And so what we're going to see in our text this morning are some red flags, are some caution signs of compromise. What, how, do I, how do I know when I'm heading down a wrong path? Because red flags are to symbolize warnings and protection. And to ignore red flags, as some of us have done uh, in our relationships from time to time, right? We ignore red flags. Sometimes we ignore them uh, when the doctor gives us red flags about our cholesterol or about our blood pressure. We ignore red flags. It's to our own detriment, right? It's to our own danger, and uh, red flags allow us to be aware that we're approaching something that could be harmful to us. And I think this, that what this first theme of chapter 8, this chapter, is doing for us today. Going to provide some caution signs, some warning signs, some, some spiritual red flags of compromise, okay? Some of these are going to seem really obvious to us. Yeah, Andrew, that's really obvious. We should not do this, but know this, okay? Every generation, every generation must choose the spiritual direction that they will be going in. Sometimes we're foolish when we say, you know what, my parents were committed Christians. They followed the Lord. My grandparents were committed Christians, and they followed the Lord. It, it, I'm glad for our spiritual heritage that many of us might have, but each generation, each individual has to choose the direction that they're going to go. They have to understand the choice between the wisdom of what God blesses and the warnings God gives us of living according to the world. From, again, from chapter 7 to chapter 8, 20 to 25 years have passed. The generation of chapter 7 of saying we're going to return to the Lord, we're going to be wholehearted in our worship and commitment to the Lord, that generation is now older in age. The younger generation has come behind them, and they've got to make a decision for themselves. Am I going to go with the wisdom of God, or am I going to go with the ways of the world? Verse 1, again, tells us Samuel is old, seems as though the people are starting to get restless with the decisions he's making, the condition of the ones coming behind him, and they say, we want a king. Now, before I get into the, the, the meat of what we're going to talk about, you have to understand that the nation of Israel up until this point did not have a, a human king. They were a theocracy, okay, not a monarchy or a democracy, or a, they were a theocracy. God was their king. He had prophets or judges that would speak on his behalf, but he was the one leading them. He was the one that was commanding them. He was the one who was their, their king. And in chapter 8, they're saying, basically, we don't want that anymore. We want to have a human king. We want to have a king, and they're going to use a phrase like everybody else has a king, a king like all other nations has a king. And they'll have to make a choice once again. Do I follow the wisdom of the Lord, or do I want to follow the ways of the world? Okay, four red flags. The first one, first one we see in our text, four red flags of compromise. The first one is neglecting the home, neglecting the home. Verse number one tells us Samuel was old. He made his sons judges over Israel. He gave us his names. The sons' names are Joel and Abiah. They were also judges in Beersheba. But verse number three, his sons walked not in his ways. 
but turned aside after money and took bribes and perverted judgment. First warning we see here in the text is neglecting the home. It's very sad for us to acknowledge now we've got two main leaders we've studied in the book of First Samuel, Eli and now Samuel, and neither one of them did their sons choose to follow after the wisdom of the Lord. Neither one of them did the, the homes that they brought up, did they choose to follow in their father's footsteps in trying to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. It's really sad to say that, that the two most prominent leaders in Israel, neither one of their children followed in the ways of God. We saw in week two kind of Eli's failures as a father. We saw he was really complacent. He was really apathetic. Uh, he, he saw what his sons were doing. He saw what they were participating in. He saw the kind of the wicked things they were doing, and he didn't do anything about it, right? He didn't discipline. He didn't warn, really. He didn't even really come down hard on them at all. And it was kind of his negligence that resulted in his children uh, leaving lives that were displeasing to the Lord. He didn't discipline. He didn't shape. He didn't act on what he was seeing. In reality, he didn't love his kids in the way that the Bible tells us to love our kids, right? To, to develop and shape and mentor and instruct. With Samuel, we don't really know exactly what went wrong. We don't get as much specific details as we do with Eli. Eli was really obvious. He was apathetic, and he wasn't involved, and he was negligent. What we do get, and it's really interesting, at the end of chapter number 6 and beginning of chapter number 7, we'll see that Samuel is on this kind of preaching circuit, okay? He traveled quite a bit throughout the nation of Israel on all of these different uh, prophet kind of missions. Basically, he was on the road a ton. You, you kind of do the math on how much he would have to travel to be able to keep up the schedule that the Bible says that he had doing the ministry and, and teaching the Bible and sharing and speaking for the Lord. It seems like he was gone quite a bit. But it's really interesting, the next chapter, right after it says about his preaching out schedule, okay, right after it talks about his ministry travel, the next couple verses says his sons didn't follow in the ways of their dad. The, their sons didn't follow in the path of the Lord. The next chapter kind of gives us the sense that maybe Samuel, as he was traveling from place to place and preaching and teaching and ministering, maybe he wasn't home quite enough. And it seems that maybe Eli might have been negligent in his lack of acting and his apathy. Maybe Samuel failed, it seems like he might have failed as a father because of his absence at times from the lives of his children. I think it's possible that, is, that Samuel, one of the greatest spiritual leaders in all the Bible, I think it's possible that the ministry he was committed to and this, this responsibility he had of trying to speak for the Lord and, and lead the people, that it kind of pushed out his family. You know, this is something that uh, we've kind of had to wrestle with from time to time. My personality is one of achievement. I like to build things. I kind of have a weird entrepreneurial side to me. If I like to take things that aren't and make them into something else, I just kind of have that wiring in my DNA. My wife is very similar in that. Um, early on when we came to our church, we were, I mean, Sarah and I have always really been team focused in ministry. Uh, it really hasn't ever been me. If there's, uh, you ever seen me at church, you've probably seen Sarah right next to me. This is kind of how we approach life, but we very much gave ourselves into this kind of replanting of the church. And at that point we didn't have any kids and, uh, I didn't have any gray hair and I didn't have a beard either because there's a lot of chins underneath the beard that you try and hide with the chins of the beard. But um, we were young. We had all the ambition in the world. And I think it was a godly ambition. I really do. I think it was a, a good thing, um, really giving ourselves over to, to the church and to the ministry. 
And if I'm honest, the lines between where the church stopped and where our home started, they did not exist. Okay, that was just all of us was all ministry all the time. Uh, we loved it. Uh, something changed in 2015, and we had a little human. And then since then, we have two more little humans. And what we've noticed and the advice that we've gotten from people that love us enough to tell us a hard truth is that we have to start having some of those lines. Um, there's some importance to that. Um, we've had mentors, guys who have raised kids that have been in ministry or pastoral work who have pulled us aside and said really carefully, um, you need to have some priorities in your life of God for us, our family, and then our ministry. And that is hard when you love what you do so much. And I do, I love what I do. And I, um, there's something very fulfilling even in a, a real world aspect to what I get to do. But we have to be careful to keep those priorities in order. And it was such a weird thing because it felt like we got pulled aside by like three or four different um, older kind of seasoned mentors within like a three-month span after we had our first kid of saying, hey, you need, to, you need to prioritize your life here, okay? You need to be able to say no to some things to say yes to some other things. You need to be able to prioritize your life this way. I've never really forgotten that. And we've had seasons where we've missed it. We've had seasons where a ministry jumped a little bit too high here, or we, we, we sacrificed some things for that. But I can still kind of hear those words ringing in my mind. God, family, ministry. God, family, ministry, okay? Now, obviously... Some people can sacrifice hard work and um, drive on the altar of family. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like that. Says, oh, I don't really work very hard because I have a family. Um, that's not biblical, okay? God calls us to be diligent. God calls us to work hard. God calls us to produce in our lives. But most people, in most cases, it's, it's usually the opposite of work. Or for those who serve in a, in a ministry role like Samuel, for that to kind of make its way in every little corner and crevice of your life. And it can push things out. It can push, if maybe you're in the room and you're a business owner, you realize it can push some things out. Right? You get a call at 8.30 p.m. if someone's emergency. It can push out the movie you're watching with your kids. Okay? It can push out you know, that email when you open it up and the, the clients that are not happy. Right? It can push some things out. And for Samuel, I think it's pretty obvious to me in Scripture, there's some connection between the call on his life and the commitment he gives to it and then connecting it with the lack of his family's following after that maybe there was some kind of disconnect between what dad did at work and what dad did at home. Or maybe dad was always at work. Some kind of neglect of the relationship of the home. Again, we don't know exactly what's happened here, trying to follow a little bit what God's word gives us. What we do know is that for Eli and for Samuel, something was off. Something was off for both of these families, both of these, high, these, 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 these priests in Israel, these prophets in Israel, for their own children not to desire after the things of the Lord. Maybe there was some distraction or some distance or some laziness that caused a disconnect between Samuel and his children, okay? Now, obviously, this is pointed at Samuel as, as a dad. Some men, we can be encouraged we should be encouraged by scripture this morning. I'm really thankful that the Bible is not a story of perfect dad after perfect dad after perfect dad because there are no perfect dads except for one, right? Um, I'm encouraged this morning as we read through scripture that Samuel, as God used him, he was not a perfect man. He was not a perfect father. And I'm really thankful for that because I don't, I don't open my Bible and always think, I stink, I stink, I stink. All these guys are awesome, 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 right? Uh, they fail too. And they fall short. 
I think there, there, there's moments that Samuel will probably look back on and wish he had invested in Joel or invested in a, in a different way than he did. There's some kind of disconnect there. Samuel struggled as a dad. Eli struggled as a dad. Now, don't take that salve that we're not supposed to be perfect and allow yourself to be pointed towards apathy, okay? Um, sometimes we can hear, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Thank you, Lord, that nobody's perfect. I can continue not to be perfect and just continue to falter and fail, right? We want to take the, the, the encouragement from that, that we're not perfect, and Samuel wasn't perfect, but let's be pointed in a good direction, right? Let's learn the lessons that maybe Samuel's life can teach us here, some red flags to avoid, some warning signs to be careful of. Uh, I always like the phrase, uh, the best of men are men at best. Right, that even the people you're so impressed with, when you get closer, you might not always be as impressed with them. Right, the best of men are men at best. What does Paul say in the New Testament? Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Right, I'm not the important one here. I'm not not the one who's really showing you the way. You you want to follow me as I follow Christ. The best of men are men at best. If you look at spiritual leaders, if you look at myself, if you look at leaders in our church as these kind of authority figures that are going to be some kind of perfect, okay, or some unrealistic expectation, I promise you it will take you 4.2 seconds to be really let down, okay? There is no perfect person. There is no perfect dad. There is no perfect spiritual leader. All of us, best of men, are men at best. But the Bible says these non-perfect examples, you read 1 Corinthians 10, these non-perfect examples in the Bible are given to us for our instruction, That when we see them falter, when we see them fail, when we see them struggle, those are gifts to us to learn, right? You ever sat down, I I did when we first started having kids, sitting down with a lot of other dads and just asking, what is this going to be like? Like, what am I supposed to do? Um, You know, I I was always taught to hold my wife's purse like a football, right? You don't put your wife's purse on your shoulder, you carry it like a football. You tighten it in in the arm in the corner. And I'm trying to think, like, what what are the unwritten man rules for fatherhood? Like, I was taught these random things from my dad, like, but now, how do I be a dad, right? Do I carry the child like a football? Do I, you know, how do I, how do, I do all these same things? You want to learn from people's example, right? You want to you see some people that have walked ahead of you and learn from them. That's what Samuel is for us this morning, guys. He's someone that walked ahead of us, probably let the work life, the, the career life, even the, for him, the ministry life, overflow a line there, and as a result, his kids wanted nothing to do with it. We got to be careful, Okay. Uh, we, we've warned, we warned here about the compromise that could take place in the relationships that exist in our own home. The red flags of inaction or apathy or absence or neglecting, instructing our kids. Now, Samuel and Eli, obviously, they were, they were these iconic spiritual leaders. They would have been very familiar with the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 4, where in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we are, ta- or, sorry, chapter 6, we're taught how to teach the word. I put it there in your outline Hear, O Israel, Moses writes, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in your heart. What do you notice in verses four and five? A love for the Lord and a love for his word. Hey, this is, this is to be the, the trademark of your homes. First, a love for the Lord. Verse five, love the Lord with all your heart. Verse 6, and these words that I command thee this day shall be in the heart. We love the Lord, men. We love our, the word. And what happens? Verse 7, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up. In other words, all the time, right? So he says you love the Lord, you love his word, and then you teach your kids what you love, right? I, I love 
teaching my kids what I enjoy. I like passing on my unfortunate sports fandoms to my children. I love trying to instill in them what I care about. But guys, how often are we trying to instill in their hearts a love for the Lord, a love for his word? And what he says here is when you love the Lord with all your heart and you love his word, it's going to be a natural overflow that when people bump into you, they just get hit with some living water, okay? When people bump into you, you're, just, you're sharing with them what you're learning. You're sharing with them how much you love the Lord and love his word. This is one of my favorite things about being a part of a church family. And you guys don't even realize this because I think sometimes you guys try and uh, you're just trying to share with me what's going on. But I, I leave so convicted and so challenged and so encouraged by so many of your stories because I can't even think of moments this past week where I was sitting down with a gentleman, and he was just sharing with me what God's doing in his life. And he wasn't trying to impress anybody, just kind of sharing what God's doing. And he was talking about how much he loves the Lord. He was talking about how much he loves his church. And he was burdened for his kids that they would kind of catch on to uh, the truth of the word. And it was just incredible to see this man who loves the Lord passionately, loves the word of God, and has this desperate desire for his kids and his grandkids to get some of that, Right? To, to share with them what he's learning. That's Deuteronomy 6. Love God with your whole heart, love the word, and then spill out that love on everybody else. It shouldn't take you long as a, as a dad or as a husband, as a mom, even very applicable in this passage, to share with your children the truth of your love for God, the truth of his word. That should be a very regular occurrence in your home. Sometimes we overstructure that, okay? Um, I was brought up in a, in a family devotion kind of home. I think those are good, family devotions. As a kid, I loved the habit of family devotions. Far more, looking back, I love it a far, lot more than I did in the moment, okay? Uh, as an 11-year-old kid sitting there, like, I'm not, I'm not game for this right now, bro. Like, I'm not really here, right, for the family devotion. Sometimes we try and structure it all, and we need all the Bible memorization plans. All those things are good. But you know what's far more effective usually in the lives of your children? If you love the Lord with all your heart, and you love his word, and when you're in the car on the way to school, you're talking about the Lord, and when you're at home and you have an opportunity to share what you read in the word, you share with them, and it's not awkward because you do it all the time, right? You're just constantly sharing what God's teaching, what sharing what God's doing in your life. That's a love for the Lord, a love for his word. It just kind of spills on everybody else. So love the Lord, love his word, and teach your kids. Now, in that moment, if you're like me, my heart is tempted towards condemnation. Because there is no more, fail maybe husbanding, okay, but there is no more thing I feel more like a failure on a daily basis than being a dad, right? Like, I mean, I feel like I mess up every day in some way, right? You lose your cool, you had an opportunity to share the word, but you chose not, so like all, all these sorts of failures. And our heart can be tempted towards condemnation, thinking about how I mess up, think about how much of a loser husband or dad or mom we are. But I want you to know, when you feel those feelings in your heart, the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn, okay? That's not what the Holy Spirit does, okay? The Holy Spirit convicts us towards change. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us as losers. He convicts us towards something greater, okay? So don't listen to the lies of condemnation right now. And wives, listen really carefully. This is not the, the moment for like a swift elbow in the ribs of the guy next to you, okay? Um, if that's your kind of wiring, you're tempted in those moments. Um, sometimes we, we joke about wives can kind of be the, I told you so, police in church, right? I told you you need to do that. See, Pastor Andrew said it too. See, you need to do that too, right? Just kind of be the Holy Spirit for our husbands. Um, I told you you stink, and he said you stink. You stink, right? Uh, we can kind of be that in, in our own hearts. I want to tell you, okay, if we're being condemning towards one another, if we're constantly pointing out one another's flaws, can I tell you this morning that's not helpful, and many times it's actually sinful, okay? Um, that's not our role. 
That's not, that's not our job. Now, we want to correct and, and help and sharpen. And the Bible talks about, you know, re- washing one another with the word. That we have this commitment to, to help one another. But to constantly condemn and to constantly shame, you are a loser. You stink at this. I wish you'd do that more. I always kind of instilling those things. It's not helpful, okay? Um, the last thing that your husband who wants to be a good godly dad needs is you telling him, ma'am, how much of a bad dad he is, okay? Um, we're fully aware, most of us. And this is reverse too, okay? We'll get to passages where we talk about mothering and motherhood and wives and husbands. It's never your chance to elbow that way, okay? Um, you know what the, your opportunity is? You want to see change in your spouse? You pray, okay? You pray. And there's testimony all over the room of God doing that in other people's lives where he didn't say a thing. I wasn't shaming, condemning, but man, did I pray for something to change, right? And God did. So God has far more power than your elbow does, okay? Uh, so ladies, don't hit them too hard, all right? Um, and God's been helping me with that over the past few years. Sometimes you want to see people change. And if you're not praying for that person, I feel like the Lord told me, like, just spoke over my life the past couple of years. If you're not praying, shut up, Andrew. Like, if you're not praying for them to change, don't try and manipulate the situation for them to change. Don't try and pressure for them to change. Let's just pray for people, okay? He's the one who can change people. Um, that's not in my notes. They'll continue. But um, So, man, let's not be... Con- let's not be condemned in shame, but let's hear the word this morning. Let the conviction of the Spirit say, I want to do that, right? I want to steal my kids. I want to be absent. I don't want to let work overflow too much to the point where my kids aren't getting this, this instilled in them in the way they should. I want to f- let that fuel my life, take that conviction and put it to work. God, I want, I want you to shape the hearts of my kids and the minds of my kids. And I want it to be God, family, career. God, family for us, ministry. And we'll focus on that. So first red flag of compromise is we start neglecting those primary relationships in our home. Second red flag starts in verse four. We'll call it increasing worldliness, okay? Increasing worldliness. Verse four, all the elders of Israel gathered together themselves and came to Samuel unto Ramah. This is kind of the new spiritual headquarters in Israel. And said unto him, behold, you're old. Your sons don't walk in your way. So make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Again, 20 to 25 years have passed. Another generation is here, and they are not choosing to follow in the steps of their fathers of repentance and trust and wholehearted worship. They've got to choose their own spiritual direction, and it looks like they're choosing to follow after the paths of the world. And maybe if you're a young adult in the room, I want you to hear me out. Okay, you have to decide what you are going to do. You have to decide, are you going to follow the truth of the word, or are you going to follow the path of the world? It doesn't matter what mom and dad did. It doesn't matter what grandma and grandpa did. It doesn't matter what your aunts or uncles do. It doesn't guarantee you will. You've got to choose. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we're going to serve the Lord, right? We make those decisions ourselves. We, that's our, our individual decision. Notice in verse 4, the elders, they want change. They want a better way. They say, hey, I know that this theocracy thing has worked for a while where God was our king, but we've been surveying people right? And we've been looking around at all the other nations. They've all got a human king with a crown, and it's cool, and a big sword. We want to be like those guys, right? We, we, want, to be, we want to change like them. We need to be really nervous this morning. This is a good caution flag for us, okay? We want to be really nervous anytime that we try and correct God and give him counsel rather than heeding his counsel and correction to us, okay? Well, God, I feel like if you did it this way and changed that, I feel like you'd probably be more successful, and you know, this, this is him calling the shots. We listen, right? Really, really afraid, really careful when we start to give counsel to God instead of taking his. Oh, God, I've, I've gone to some classes, and I, I, I learned some things, and I feel like this could really help you out if you, you know, approach the kingdom this way, or if you granted this person this gift or that. I feel like it would happen. We need to be careful, okay? It happens all the time. A lot of times it's subliminal, but we do it. We do it. Um, 
They're not satisfied with where they are. They're not satisfied with God being their king. So in verse 5, they start looking elsewhere. Look at it, verse 5. Where do they look? Thou art old, thy sons walk not in thy ways, so make us a king to judge us like all the nations. In other words, all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. They want more than a change of leadership here, okay? They want a whole new institutional approach to Israel. We don't want God to be our king anymore. We want a human king. This is a rejection of God. This is a rejection of Samuel's leadership, a rejection of God himself. Why do they want this? Why are they so dissatisfied? I think we notice in verse 5 where their eyes are looking is why they're dissatisfied. They're looking at the world. Saying, why can't we be like them? They've got, they've got a king they can see. They, they've, got a, they've got a king that they can follow. Why, why can't we be more like the other nations? Right? It's a very important principle. The vast majority of the discontentment in the lives of Christians comes from a desire to be like everybody else around us. Why can't I have what they have and live like they live and have that kind of freedom or have those kind of opportunities? Think about your own story, okay? Is there ever been a moment you start getting discontent with where you are in your journey with Christ or discontent with where you are in life and you start looking around what everybody else has? Why can I have that? Why can I live that way? So often these things aren't based on Christ. They're based on the world. Well, why isn't my life like everybody else's life? Why, why aren't we like the other nations, they said. They wanted the security they thought an earthly king would give them. They wanted some kind of security, some kind of conformity to the world. And they wanted the blessing of God on their conformity to the world. They wanted their identity to be similar to all the other people, all the other nations around them. We're missing something because they have a king and we don't. Uh, you ever heard of FOMO? I'm young and hip, so I know terms, all right? Uh, if you know me, I'm not really either of those things, but um, fear of missing out, right? Fear of missing out, it was a cool phrase like nine years ago, and I'm usually caught up about that time, right, it's my, in my cultural moment. But um, it's amazing when you kind of talk to people, how many people are legitimately being led in their lives with major life decisions, and they're making decisions based on, I don't want to miss out on something. Like, we're not talking small decisions. We're talking big decisions. And their entire decision-making rubric is, I don't want to miss out on anything. I want to experience everything. And if somebody else has something out there that I don't get to have or I'm not going to experience, then I'm going to figure out a way to get myself there. So I sacrifice some really important things about ourselves in order to just be like everybody else. Can I tell you something? FOMO is actually the opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us you will miss out. You will. He told us that, right? You're not going to fit in. He says some people are going to say you're weird, and they're going to reject you. He says you're going to take up your cross. They're going to mock you as you live a lifestyle that's different than theirs. There will be a missing out. First Peter says we're going to be a peculiar people. I don't know if you ever used that word in a positive way. I haven't, right? Um, peculiar means you're different. There's something about the life of a Christian that does. You, you, you in some ways... You stand out. The nation of Israel no longer wanted that. We want to be like all the other nations. We, we want to be able to sit at the table with our, our, all these other people, all these other countries, and to structure ourselves in exactly the same way. They sought the culture. They, they sought their own wisdom. We've come up with this plan. They've sought their own ways. I love Proverbs 16.25. This is wisdom for us, okay? The phone's ringing. It's wisdom. Pick it up. Okay, Proverbs 16.25. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, seems right there's a way that feels right to a man 
There's a way in our world that everybody else is going, and it seems right. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's applauding it. Everyone's cheering it. What does he say? The end thereof are the ways of death, of destruction. There's a way, there's a path that in our world seems right in our own human nature. It seems right with what everybody else is doing around us, but the end destination of that path is destruction. So the question is, do I compromise now, go with the flow and end the destruction, or do I count the cost, accept the cost of following Jesus with the promise that life leads to flourishing and satisfaction and fulfillment? That's the question. And sometimes as Christians, we try and walk a line where I want to also do what God wants me to do, but also do what I want to do. I want to follow the Lord, but I also want to follow the world. We saw last week we can't do that, right? Jesus tells us pretty plainly, you can't serve both, right? You can't serve the things of this world and serve the Lord at the same time. If you increase in worldliness, the guarantee of Scripture is you will decrease in godliness. You can't just like more of everything, okay? The more the world has our hearts and our attention and our minds, the less God does. The more you fill yourself with the things of the world, the less you fill yourself with God. We decrease in godliness. We decrease in God's blessings. We decrease in God's direction. There's not really middle ground here if I want to be pleasing to the Lord and pleasing to the world. And I want to do what the world asks me to do, but I also kind of want to have Christian thing on the side. And that doesn't work. And that temptation is there. We've all kind of tried it to do both, but it doesn't work. To follow the world, to look like the world, to, to speak like the world, he says this is an increase in our worldliness, and that guarantees decreasing in godliness. There are so many Christians who are caving to that pressure. Oh, we want to be like everybody else. I don't want to be different. I don't want to miss out on what they get to enjoy. I don't want to miss out on whatever seems like it's so fulfilling to them. And they, they've got this earthly king that supplies them with, with protection and with guidance and with, with authority. And we want that, right? We want what they have. We want to be like the nations. I want to ask ourselves this morning, where in my life is that worldliness of desire, what, what the structures of the world, the temptations of the world, where is it creeping into my life? Most of us can find one or two little areas at least, maybe big areas, where the desires of the world, the desires to be like everybody else is starting to creep in. And my heart, I feel it increasing with the world and decreasing with the Lord. I want to be like the nations. It's not going to go great. It's not going to go great. So red flag, right? Worldliness increasing in my life. I've got a lack of desire for things of the Lord. I've got a greater desire for things of the world. That's a warning sign. Thirdly, thirdly, what else do we see the nation of Israel doing? We see them disregarding the counsel of God. Disregarding the counsel of God. Let's go on to verse number 10. So Samuel hears about their desires. They say, we want a king that can do what we say. They want a king that can kind of lord over us and lead us. We, we want an earthly king. Verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. In other words, God, God brings it to Samuel, or Sarah, Samuel brings it to God, and God says, let him have it. And we'll see in a minute, that's one of the worst things that can ever happen to us, is that God gives us what we want, okay? Let him have it. So Samuel comes back, says, this is going to be the kind of king that's going to reign over you, verse 11. He'll take your sons and appoint them for himself. For his chariots to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. He'll appoint him captains over thousands and over fifties. He'll set his ear to the ground and reap the harvest and make instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. Verse 13, he'll take your daughters. Verse 14, he'll take your fields. Verse 15, he'll take the tenth of your seed. Verse 16, he'll take your men servants and your maidservants. Verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your sheep. Verse 18, you will cry out on that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen. And the Lord will not hear you on that day. 
said, okay, you want a king? This is the kind of king you're going to have. He's going to take from you and take from you and take from you and take from you. And those of us who live in Connecticut know the government doesn't always give to us. They take from us, right? So they're, they're taking. He said, this is the kind of king you're going to have. He's going to take for himself. He, he's going to build a kingdom unto himself. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the one that's taking the resources. He's going to be the one that's taking the livestock. He's going to be the one that's taking your, your young men to be his soldiers. He's going to be the one taking your young daughters to be his wife. That, that's what the reality of what this king is going to be like. He says, you're not going to like this decision. And again, sometimes the greatest judgment God can give us is to give us everything we want. We don't really know what's best for us. We don't. And that's hard for us to hear, but could you just take a second and be honest with yourself and imagine what your life would be like if God gave you everything you ever wanted, the way that you wanted it, when you wanted it? Some of you young ladies prayed for that young pimple-faced boy to look your direction, and now you realize, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that I was spared that, right? Or there's a job opportunity that you really felt like you were in line for, and then the company fell through. Like We, we all think we know what's best. But as life plays out, we realize, oh, God knew what he was doing. And when that door was closed or that door didn't open or this path wasn't as clear as I wanted it to be and I had to turn another direction, we look back on those moments where God was doing something. It shouldn't be mind-blowing to us to realize God is smarter than us. He's smarter than us. And that's hard for us to hear in our educated New England minds sometimes, but he's smarter than us. This is why God allows at times suffering and heartache in trials because he's smarter than us. I would never pick those things. I would never pick a health trial. I would never pick a, a financial loss. I would never pick a, a difficulty in the family. But God brings those things to our past. Why? Because he's smarter than us. And he knows what's going to produce what is good within us. He disciplines those that he loves. He's, and sometimes the very thing we need the most is what we want the least. And sometimes what we want the most is what we need the least. It's a huge red flag in our lives is when we begin to give God advice or counsel, telling him what we need, how we need it, versus just listening for what he's going to guide us in. Look at Psalm 106. I put it there in your outline. Psalm 106, verse 13. This is a good summary of the nation of Israel. Read the Old Testament as a whole, Psalm 106, verse 13 to 15. I want you to notice the verbs. If you're a grammar nerd, you'll see them with me, okay? Verse 13 to 15. This is described in the children of Israel. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. They lusted or desired exceedingly in the wilderness. They tested or tempted God in the desert. In verse 15, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. They forgot the works of God. They didn't wait for his advice. They told him what they wanted. They told him what they needed. They, verse 14, lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They were testing God in the desert. And what happened? Verse 15, God gave them what they wanted. But what came with what they wanted? The Bible calls it leanness of soul. I love that verbiage, leanness. That may be where some of us are at this morning, leanness of soul, where we got what we wanted, but with what we wanted came a, came a leanness in our hearts, a lack of fulfillment. Oh, if I make it to this level, I know I'm gonna be happy. I know I'll be successful. I know I'll feel good. I know I'll have those feelings of accomplishment. And we got what we wanted, and we got leanness of soul. That door finally opened, the door we begged God to open, the door we plowed through without listening if God was going to open it. We got there and we got with it leanness of soul. We got what we wanted, but attached to our worldly desires was not fulfillment, but a lack of fulfillment. The promise of the word is the things of this world will never satisfy us. 
They don't give the wholeness of soul that a life pleasing to the Lord does. It gives us this leanness. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're getting what you wanted out of life. You're just not fulfilled. I thought when I got married, I thought when I had a kid, I thought when I had the job, I thought when the business was going well that everything was going to feel better than it does. And I just feel kind of lean, scarce. I feel hungry in my soul. There's a leanness to my heart. Where we got what I wanted out of life, but I'm still not satisfied. Notice verse number 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 8 where he says, you're going to become servants to that which you asked for. That which you were begging God for and desiring, God, would you give us a king? Would you help us? Would you give us this ruler? Give us this leader? He says, you're going to become servants to that king. And so often that's been the case in my life where the more I get what I want, the more enslaved I am to what I wanted. Maybe it's you, uh, maybe it's pride, lusting for things to be about us, and then all of a sudden we're enslaved to the pursuit of pride. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind where I, lusted after the feeling or the rush or the emptiness of feeling that all of a sudden now I'm enslaved to that kind of feeling. Maybe it's power, maybe it's lust, or this is what we wanted, this is what we pursue. The more we get it, the more we're enslaved by it. Sometimes, so what we're so desperate for, you get everything you wanted and you realize you never should have wanted it. Verse 18, you will cry out, you will regret everything you asked for. This morning, my hope is that we can learn from our history, okay? Heed the wisdom and counsel of the Lord. Don't correct him and tell him what you really want and what you really need and what's really best. Heed his counsel. And again, why? Because he is so much, so much smarter than us. And I think all of us would nod our heads and kind of giggle, yeah, God is smarter than us. But do we live like he is? I think we all acknowledge it. Well, yeah, God made everything and he knows everything. He's smarter than me. But we don't often live that way. We, we, we correct him. We try and plow through doors that he's obviously closed. We don't live like he is infinite in wisdom, that he's so smart and that we're finite. He's infinite in wisdom and we're finite majoring in stupid, okay? The ways of God work. They work. By the way, even if you remember you're not a believer, let me tell you, most of the, the major structures of this world that work are based on the truths of the book that are sitting in our laps. Best-selling business books of all time, guess what? They follow the path of Scripture of how to build wealth. Best leadership books you're going to find on the shelves of Barnes & Noble largely follow the servant leadership model of the New Testament. You look at anything in Scripture, the best relationship books of how to have a good home, how to raise your kids, how to instill in them character, how to have a relationship that works with one another. So often they're based on the truth of biblical values. Why? Because God knows what he's doing. He knows how we work. Why does he know how we work? Because he made us, right? He knows everything about us. He knows how we tick. So my hope today is that we choose to trust in him, rejecting the path to foolishness and destruction found in the world and choose to follow the path of wisdom and life and blessing in Jesus Christ. We live in a culture, a country even, that was founded upon, if you're a history person, it was founded upon Judeo-Christian values. That's what America was founded upon. Um, built on the wisdom of the truths of Scripture, which is why there have been so many blessings throughout the history, oftentimes, of our country. Not a perfect country. Obviously, there's a whole lot of messes that have existed in our country from its very beginning. But we now live in a moment where largely the majority of our culture is discarding those values wholesale and choosing to run in another direction, dismissing those values. 
rejecting the paths of God. And guess what? It's not going to work. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end of it is the paths of destruction. If we reject God's way, it will not work. And you say, I don't, I don't believe that we're all the way leaving. I think, we've, I think we've all the way left for a lot of the way. I was opening up my phone. I'm a big, I'm a big meme guy. I'm emoji killer. I'm a great with an emoji. Um, so I was opening up my phone. I was looking for the text. I was flipping through and looking for the right one because you got to find the right emoji. It's important, right? So let's find the right one. And it was a couple weeks ago, and I went over, and there was a little person, and I touched it or whatever, and it said pregnant person. I said, well, that's not real, right? You go next to it, it said pregnant man. I said, that's, that's just not true, right? It's not true. Now, I want to be as compassionate. We're called to be compassionate, grace-filled, kind. We're not here to, to, to demean or to tear down an image bearer of God of any way, but we, we, we have to speak that which is true, right? There's, there's reports all around our country right now of children in elementary schools coming to school and not saying, identifying as animals. That I'm, I'm not a child, I'm a cat. And it's happening. It's happening, like, and, well, what, what are we supposed to, we're, we're rejecting, we're leaning on our own paths of understanding. That is a conversation that every generation that has ever existed in the history of humankind would say, that doesn't compute in my mind. That doesn't make any sense, right? We are wholesale rejecting as a culture the truths of Scripture. We are rejecting the counsel of God to lean on our own understanding. These things cannot hold together. The end of this path of rejecting the counsel of God is destruction. Now, I want compassion, and I want love, and I want humility, and I want grace, and we always should exhibit those things as Christians, but we also need clarity. One of my favorite things my wife advises me on this, not with an elbow usually, but she helps me with it, is to be clear is to be kind. Sometimes we, we, we will so want to be nice to everybody, and we so want to be encouraging and compassionate with everybody that we're cloudy. Our job as Christians, we have to be clear, okay? This is the truth of God, because without clarity, compassion falls flat. It's fake compassion. Without clarity, compassion doesn't work. God gives us his word. God gives us his counsel. My hope is that his, as his people, as his church, we would heed it this morning, stop advising him, and start taking his counsel at work in our lives. Paul tells Timothy that this day is coming. He tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Timothy, preach the word, begins to end season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Why? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they will, after their own lust, look at this, just compare this with what the, the nation of Israel is doing in 1 Samuel. After their own lust, they will heap themselves teachers, having itching ears. They will turn away their ears from the truth. They kind of get the picture of them literally plugging their ears. They don't want to hear it. And they will be turned unto fables or unto nonsense, because we reject the truth and we run towards that which is fake. He's warning us that this would happen, and this is where we are. This is the world in which we live in today. We're tempted. I am. I'm sure you are too. You sit down with someone who you know doesn't believe like you believe, and we're tempted. We're tempted to dismiss God's eternal truth or to be cloudy on God's eternal truth so that I'm not called a dinosaur or so that I'm not some kind of religious bigot. We, we so fear that rejection. Again, I'm not talking about being unkind. I'm not talking about being condemning. I'm not talking about being mean-spirited. What I'm talking about is speaking the truth, right? Now, what would Jesus say to that fear? Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, excuse me. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company, when they shall reproach you or cast out your name for evil for the Son of Man's sake. In other words, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. 
What does he say to do? He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner they did, they did there unto their fathers, unto the prophets. Okay, he's saying, hey, it will be painful. You will have separations that exist in this world. There won't be always people who want to hear the truth and the clarity of scripture, but rejoice in that moment because I'm focused on the next life, not just on this one. Your reward is great in heaven. So yes, church, be filled with love and be filled with compassion and be filled with grace, but also be filled with the truth. The truth, because we need the truth of God. We don't reject the counsel of God. We don't reject the wisdom of God. We, we follow it. Number four, I need to hurry. Number four, last red flag here that really pushes them all the way into rebellion is we'll call it refusing obedience. You could call that disobedience, but I chose to keep my ings in my outline, okay? So if you refuse obedience, you disobey, okay? But refusing obedience. Let's start in verse number 19. So he gives them this warning. This is the king that's going to come for you. He's going he's to take from you. He's going to you know, tax you. He's going to take things under himself. He's going to manipulate you. You're going to become enslaved to him. Verse 19, nevertheless, this is scary, guys. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. If there, there, there's not a strong enough word. Red flag isn't a strong enough word, okay? When you start saying God starts telling you things, his word tells you things, and you say no, we're, we're past compromise, okay? We're in full-out disobedience at this point. Look at it, refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, no, we will have a king over us. You start having moments in your life where God is point blank telling you things from his word, this is the path that I'm calling you to live, and you say no, Warning flags, baby, like big red sirens should be going off in your mind. This is scary. Okay, this is dangerous. Where am I at as a believer right now that God is telling me this is how I should live and I am outright living another path, another direction? Maybe God's telling me, or maybe you're dating, right? And God's saying, hey, you need to get married before physical intimacy. And you're saying, nah, I don't think that really works for us. Be careful, okay? And then God's telling me, point blank, this is the path I should be going down. I'm choosing no red flags, Okay? Sirens should be going off in my mind as a Christian. Why am I outright rejecting the word and truth of God? Look at what he said in verse 20. Why do they want a king so bad? That we may also, again, be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Notice, what they wanted from an earthly king, their true king has been doing all along. We want him to judge us. We want him to go out before us. This is the same people that the, literally the pillar of fire went in front of them and the cloud went in front like, of how them. How can you go before in any greater way than you marched around the wall six times and they came down? Like, you want a God to protect you. How, how much more could a God protect you and fight your battles than the God who literally made the walls come down? But Samuel heard the words of the people. He rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice. Give them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his own city. God should be the one who goes before them. God should be the one who's judging them. God should be the one who's fighting their battles. But this is what compromise does. You start seeking from the world that which can only come from God. And the Lord is set aside. And the world disappoints you. And then you're in despair. It happens time and time and time and time again. But if you're in a point this morning where there is willful, obstinate disobedience in your lives to the Lord, we need to be very aware of that. If there's an area of my life where I'm in willful, obstinate disobedience, where God has told me something, I've said no. No. 
I won't do it. Forget it. My hope is we hear the call for wisdom this morning. Okay, and there's some warning signs in our text. There's some well, warning signs, but I think there's also a welcome sign, okay? A welcome sign, because we get a contrast in the word this morning of what the path to destruction looks like, but I think we also get a contrast to what the path to flourishing looks like. This whole chapter is about what? It's about the nation of Israel wanting a king. We want a king, but they wanted it on their terms, and they wanted it in their timing. If you read scripture, we always knew Israel was going to get a king. God was going to send a king to Israel. They're going to get a king according to their terms and timing. They're going to get a king that will abuse them, that will take from them, that will enslave them. If they would have waited for God's timing, if they would have waited for the ways of the Lord, they would get a king. Not just any king, they'd get the king of kings. They would get a king that would not take from them, but would give to them and give to the point of death that they might live. They wouldn't get a king that would exploit and take advantage of them, but one that would give them unfathomable love and grace and salvation redemption back to him forever. If they had just waited, they would not be serving a king that would enslave them, but one that would set them free, free from their addictions, free from anything that would ever enslave them again. That is the king that God will send. That is the king of kings, and this, his name is Jesus Christ. They're longing for him, and they're trying to fill it with every possible human hole. He came to give his life, poured his grace, set us free. He died for us, suffered God's wrath for us, rose again for us, and one day, Christian, he will return for us. We just sang about that. He'll return for us. Look you in the eyes and say, welcome home, my child, to everlasting life and peace and home and glory. You lived at a cost now, but now the fun begins and the glory begins and the promise of scriptures would be so, 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 so worth it. So red flags, don't follow this path that ends in destruction and pain. The Bible calls it the wide path that many are on that leads to destruction, separation, and death. But my hope this morning is we heed the welcome sign to the true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the only one through which everlasting life and peace and grace and love is found through the one true king who will not enslave but will set us free. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed in a moment. Father.